The gospel lesson is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 20, and I will be reading verses 19 through 31. This is the gospel of our Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sides. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they uh, are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he declared, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. I'm going to uh, begin a series of sermons on what the great historian of the church in the 19th century, Philip Schaffs, called the Creed of Creeds. He was referring to the Apostles' Creed, not written by the Apostles, but we have a record of this creed that goes back to the third century, and we believe it's based on a creed very similar uh, that was in the second century. Almost all of the statements in the Apostles' Creed are taken from the New Testament. Now, I will likely take a break from this pattern. It's at least 12 sermons. Uh, but I'll take a break from it on May 20th and May 27th, which happens to be uh, a period that I want to preach on Ascension Sunday about the Ascension of Christ and on Pentecost about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Also, on June 3rd, I'll preach on the Trinity. Now, why this series? Recently, I was uh, seated at a table with some strangers, but they were all Christians. And one of them, talking about their church, said to me, when they find out who I am, a clergy, uh, they usually engage me along this line. You know, uh, we, we don't have creeds. We just go by the Bible, uh, this person was telling me. And he further added to complete his description of his church 
and their approach said, we believe in being led by the Holy Spirit. People can speak in the service as they're so moved and led. We don't have any set form of worship. Now, truthfully, I kind of grew up that way, so I understand the mindset uh, very much. I also think, though, it um, is a mindset that really undermines, if, I, if you will, the corporate doctrine, belief, and worship of the church. Now, you can do that on occasion, and we should give our testimonies and things like that. But uh, there is a sense in which if we reject creeds, we're rejecting something, a dimension, a reality that is most precious to the Christian believer and to the fellowship of the saints. Recently, I got an email from a person. It was actually only a couple of weeks ago. I thought they would be here on Easter, but they didn't show up. A person who has attended Westminster said that she was unclear about the use of creeds, adding that she did not know what the statements in the creed meant anyway. Well, thinking that that could be wider spread than uh, uh, I might have thought, these two incidents both provoked me then to preach a series of sermons on the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> To give a reason, if you will, for creeds and to particularly unpack what the Christian faith teaches as it is set forth in the Apostles' Creed. This first sermon is only on two words, only two words, and it is, I believe. Two words, I think you can remember that, I believe. I believe. I want to address such questions as what are beliefs? How do we form a belief? And how does belief, for instance, relate to reason and experience? The text for today is the common lectionary text. It is taken from John chapter 20, and it is the famous passage of Jesus meeting with Thomas in the upper room the one that we know as the Doubting Thomas. And Thomas finally was able to express belief in Jesus after he saw him in the upper room in his wounds. The text for today, then, is an important matter when it comes to our understanding of what belief is. Thomas came to believe in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. That is referring to the rest of us. We have not seen the Lord in his physical body, in his flesh. We did not see the wounds in his hands and his side. And then the apostle who concludes this chapter with a very important verse, he said that everything that he had written in the Gospel of John, he says, these things are written that you, that's you and me, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, the Christian religion requires believers to believe certain things. 
In fact, the Christian religion requires belief in a way that no other religion does. You can be a part of some religions and actually believe nothing. Just do the practices. The focus is on practice, not on belief. But Christianity focuses on belief because Christianity is trying to take us deeper into the reality of God and of the whole reality of creation. The Christian religion requires one then to believe some things, well, about God. That's what the first paragraph in the Apostles' Creed is about. It's about God the Father who creates. Requires us to believe some things about Christ who came into this world, born uh, in the time of Pontius Pilate. The Virgin Mary was his mother. He is our Redeemer. He requires us to believe some things about the Holy Spirit, who is, in real sense, a dispenser of life. Now, let me start out by saying the word that we translate as belief is based on a Greek verb, pistuo, every first year Biblical Greek student comes across that word, pistuo. It has a lot of variety in forms in the New Testament, but it means simply to believe or to have faith in something. To believe in something or to have faith in something. Uh, you can translate in some places as having confidence in something. To entrust yourself to someone. It also means uh, then to have faith in the case of to have faith in Christ. We are called to believe and put our trust in Jesus Christ. The word for our purpose, though, is going to simply mean trust. What you confess in the Apostles' Creed is very simple. You're confessing what you trust in, what you believe to be true about the way reality is. Both St. Augustine and St. Anselm appeal to the word belief, and they both use this phrase. They, they differ a little bit in the way they state it, but let me just paraphrase, uh, paraphrase what both are really saying. Both St. Augustine and St. Anselm said something like this, I believe in order that I might understand. Now, a belief is both uh, something you believe or trust. It also can be translated, and in classical Greek it is, as opinion. We, we form beliefs and opinions. That is the nature of being human. We are finite creatures, and we must, every one of us, live by beliefs and opinions. Very little uh, of that belief and opinion can be demonstrated if you will, empirically to be true. And I want you to understand that most of the things we take to be true cannot really be demonstrated scientifically, and yet we still believe them on other grounds. So they said, I believe in order that I might understand. The key here is that we are called as Christians to believe in some things that constitutes a larger reality. If belief is a kind of trust, we are to trust in something. As the creed says, we are to trust in those things that are both seen and unseen. Now, reality is a very large picture, a very large, if you will, reality. It consists of things that we can see and touch and taste and feel and smell. 
But it also consists of things that we cannot see, though really exist. You see, you cannot have belief in something that does not exist. Belief always requires an object, a person, a concept, an abstract concept sometimes, like a number, and on and on and on. There are some things that really and truly exist exist that we can access through our sensory experience. Other things we access through our mind. And some some things we access through intuition. And uh, they're not always tangible things. Sometimes they're things that really, really exist, but you can't see them or touch them or taste them or feel them. But we are called to put our trust in something that really exists, objectively exists, outside of us. Sometimes we put confidence in ourselves. We can get into a little bit of trouble if we become overconfident, can't we? But we are called upon to put our trust or to entrust ourselves to someone else. We do that in marriage. Yesterday, I just had a marriage ceremony and two people entrusted themselves to each other. And there were a whole lot of tangible things going on there in that marriage. Uh, I know love was there, but we, we couldn't see it or taste it or touch it or feel it, but it was there. And uh, uh, surely passion was there. Surely beauty was there. Now, we can't say this is beauty, the form of it. It doesn't exist apart or separate from anything. It's the way some people are constituted. Some people are more beautiful than others. Some people are more loving than others. And yet we attribute things that we cannot see, touch, or taste as really existing. We don't see it. So belief takes us right away into a deeper reality. God has created both things that you see and things that are unseen. Yeah, there are some things that maybe go bump in the night. Now, I'm not big on any of those things, quote, that I think it was Bobby Burns who said that, to go bump in the night. I'm not really uh, big on that kind of thing, but the one thing that I do believe in that I cannot see, touch, taste, or feel that is most real of all is God. And we, we believe in God and entrust our life to God. Now, belief is important because, let's say, for instance, it helps us and opens up to us a whole new world. I believe in order that I might understand. That's what happened to Thomas. He finally believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it opened up to him a whole new world. He now would follow Jesus. It would take him to places. And he would have experiences that he would never have had before if it were not for the fact that he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there are many Christians in India today who attribute their church to the founding of the Apostle Thomas. Some way they believe he got all the way to India, to probably southern India. And he founded an apostolic church in India. And so Thomas had a different world, a different reality. Children, for instance, first become, how do they learn? They first learn through belief. They trust They trust their parents to what they say to be true. The child cannot prove anything that the parents is telling them at first of many levels. All they they can experience about some things when the parent says, you know, the stove is hot. 
The child can find out right away by going over and touching the stove. But the parent will teach them to be honest. Honesty, how does it exist? It exists in an unseen way, but it's real. And if a parent believes in honesty and they teach their child honesty, it is likely that they will believe that to be true and the way to live. They entrust themselves to that truth. And so forth. That's why parents are important in the rearing of children. Because a child needs someone to trust in, and they also need to be handled, if you will, and shepherded in a confident way in life so that they can learn how to live life. We learn an awful lot through faith and trust. The scientists, when the scientist comes to the body of knowledge that we call maybe, let's say, physics, they trust that certain laws really work and exist. And they entrust themselves to that field and to that, if you will, area of life. And through their basic trust of it, they begin to learn more and more and more and more. So belief is very important. It opens up to whole new worlds. And what the, what the uh, creed is saying is that your belief will open you up to a whole new world a fuller understanding of the way God has made all things. And a fuller understanding of God's love for you. God's seeking, searching love for you. Belief in teachers happens to be important. Our students that I mentioned earlier have subjected themselves and submitted themselves to authority, to teachers. And they trust that in bulk, they're, they're expert enough in their field to not mislead them. Takes them deeper and deeper and deeper. That's what you do as a Christian. You trust yourself to the teaching ministry of the church. And you believe that you will not be misled, but you will led, be led deeper and deeper into the way God has made all things. Belief, however, has to have an object. It has to trust something that is real. We cannot believe anything if it does not exist. How true that is. We can only believe in and have knowledge of those things that, that really exist. So therefore, when we talk about entrusting ourselves to Christ, we really believe that he factually did those things that the creed says he did. Statements from the New Testament that describe his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection. Belief, though, is not confined to, as I said, to things that you just simply see. It takes us into a deep, deep world of understanding. On the way to church today, I was looking at the leaves. I didn't have much time, but I wasn't late today, so I could look at the leaves. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, in the next couple of days, we're going to see an awful lot of leaves. And, and that's my, my trust and my opinion. In fact, I'm banking on it because I'm going to do some things when the leaves come out, do something with my bees. And um, it'll be an important thing in a way to understand the nature of bees. Uh, you can split your hive coming up pretty soon. Well, I form my action upon some beliefs that I have. The same way I form my actions in life based upon the belief that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, that he is not only the way, the truth, and the life but that he has made me a new creation and that all things are opened up to me in him. I think this accounts for the reason that Christians sometimes 
have a different understanding about life, maybe some political points of view, some philosophy, many things in life. We believe likewise that the unseen exists like honor and love and beauty. You love things about a person, don't you? You don't really see it. Nonetheless, we believe in that reality. Now, this leads me further to say, and I think this is an important point, that belief does not create anything. It's not creative. Belief never creates anything. In one sense, only God can create. He alone can bring something out of nothing. The rest of us can never create. Belief itself cannot create. Oh, if you do create, you you can have an imagination, but that's not really creation. Notice what you do when you have an imagination, a rich imagination. You're just reassembling those things in a different way or the components of reality so that maybe no one else ever thought of it. Probably someone did, though. You're just reconfiguring what you already know, rearranging the building blocks of reality. C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job at that. So does J.R.R. Tolkien. These are uh, great authors with great imaginations, and they entertain us, but they're not creating per se. In The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien actually tells a story so that he can invent a language. There's a whole language in The Lord of Rings. He just needed a way to get his language demonstrated and to get it out there, so he told the story. Most of us are totally entertained by the story, and the language is way over our heads. But he was satisfied. Wonderful entertaining story. Wonderful imagination. Good thing. George MacDonald and fairies, and the fairy stories that he told. Wonderful imagination. He inspired C.S. Lewis. But everything that we believe in must actually exist, and it must remember that it cannot create anything in addition to that. Very important point, and here's why. Around the turn of the, well, about the middle of the 19th century, and I'm not going to mention these names, a theologian who lost his faith, a seminary student who lost his faith, became an atheist and probably the author of modern atheism, Uh, made the statement that people create God. God didn't create us. People create God with their imagination. Does belief create God? In one sense, it cannot. You can indeed imagine things that are untrue, but you're not really creating. This was picked up by an awful lot of people like Nietzsche and Freud. Freud Freud thought the same thing. That God was a projection of the father figure. We created it. And yet, we can create nothing. We can misunderstand things. We can imagine things that are not true. But we really can't create anything. Of course, I don't think they were making a solid theological or philosophical statement so much as a psychological. It's important to know that. If you do imagine things that are not true and you create your own gods in that sense, you are an idolater. You're worshiping nothing. Your imagination leads you to untruth. Now, that, that aside, 
I want to come down to what I would call the ultimate and final reality about faith. When it says, I believe or I trust, belief and faith in God, rightly understood belief and faith in true reality is a gift from God. Now listen very carefully to Paul's verse that he gives us. It's, it's actually one of the linchpins of the New Testament. He says very simply about the belief that you have in God. He says, for by grace are you saved through belief or faith. That belief or faith is the gift of God. You did not generate it from yourself. He gave it to you. And he has enabled you to enter into a deeper understanding of the way God has made things. First of all, you understand now that God loves you and that God gave his life for you and his son, Jesus Christ. And that you're not insignificant. I don't know where else you can go to know that truth except to receive that as God's gift through faith and to believe those statements in the New Testament. Now, Jesus really existed. Almost everyone knows that. And those who come on television or some program maybe on National Geographic and doubt the existence of Jesus, Jesus' existence historically is not to be doubted. Now, you may doubt the claims that he made. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You may doubt that he was raised from the dead or that he is the way or the gate to heaven. But you cannot doubt his existence. He really did exist. We have more historical evidence for Jesus than we do for Socrates. And so from a historical standpoint, there's no question. The question is, who is he? Isn't that what Jesus asked his disciples at the foot of the mountain? He said to his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And Peter pipes up as he always does. And says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Jesus then say to him? Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. It indeed was revealed to him by the spirit of God. And he was able to put his trust in a deeper reality because it's God's gift. And so I want you to understand when we say, I believe, we're talking about Christian belief. It is taking us deeper and deeper into reality. A gate has been flung open and we are to walk through. That's what it means to believe as a Christian. 100 years ago today, 1,523 people perished on the Titanic 100 years ago today, um, three of those people were from my home area. I happened to read a magazine article or a newspaper of that date. 1,523 people. A lot of people. Everyone that got on that ship believed that this ship was unsinkable, didn't they? In fact, its builder said that. The owner said that. The captain raved about the ship. 
It was absolutely constructed, they said, in such a way that it could not sink. But it did. Now, sometimes we put ourselves or entrust ourselves to something that's highly probable, but then there is the exception. That's the way life is. That's why sometimes we get disillusioned when we discover that our parents have warts or flaws or that a good Christian that we know has flaws. Everything in life in some sense is fallible. But the ground of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is something that is given. And as you go on and on in faith, that is confirmed more and more to you to be true. For God who gives us faith also gives us assurance that what he declares to be the way things are happens to be the way things are. You, you, you may put your trust in a ship captain and be disappointed. The bottom line is, if you put your trust in the reality of the Apostles' Creed, and this means in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find that that becomes a foundation that you can build your entire life upon. Why study creeds? Let me go back to the very beginning for about one minute. Why preach a series of sermons on the creed? After all, Pastor, you've talked about personal belief up to this point. No one can do my believing for me. I either believe in Christ or I do not. No one the same way can do my dying. I will do my dying for myself. There's some things that focus entirely upon you. True enough. And you might say, as some of those uh, two people that I mentioned earlier, that's enough for me. I don't need the church. I don't need any professional clergy telling me anything. And in some sense, you're right. All churches are fallible. All ministers are fallible. Your neighbor is fallible. Everyone is. But what the creed does is it is a summary of what all Christians have believed down through the centuries. And it means that that one faith that Paul speaks about in Ephesians, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, that there is a reality there that we all enter into and share together. I just don't make it up myself. This reality I enter into through faith. It is not something I create, but something I receive. And it has been handed down through the centuries. It has indeed, to use a cliche, stood the test of time. I'm never worried about what some modern commentator says about Christianity in the spur of the moment or because of out of their own uh, heart of unbelief or darkness. I, I, it doesn't concern me in the least. The faith is not dented. It's the one faith. Jesus will build his church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And it's wonderful to enter into that faith, that trust, that reality with other Christians. Let me say something else. That one faith and one reality that set forth in the Apostles' Creeds enables us to worship God. 
the way he is supposed to be worshipped. You know, when I enter into the creed and I enter into some things that people did in the first century, you know what I'm doing? In some sense, I'm, I'm worshipping God and transcending time and space. I'm worshipping God with all the people of God, the whole family of God on heaven and on earth. It's not just a little individual worship here thing that you're doing on the side. I can picture some choir singing of children, and I've seen this, and men and boys choirs, and video from England. I love those men and boy choirs. And you'll see them singing. Once in a great while, you'll see one of them who is just doing their own thing, not singing or doing something. They've gotten off the page. Well, they don't contribute to the music. They've almost stepped outside of what's going on. Worship to be real and true, you must enter into with others that we all might ascribe that glory to God that's due his name in truth. That's why the creeds are so important. It keeps you from becoming idiosyncratic and, if you will, strange maybe by the world standards, but not strange by heaven standards. That's what the one faith does for us. It enables us to do that highest activity that God has called us to. Worship him in spirit and in truth. So I hope you will join me with this uh, journey through the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I will uh, look forward to some of these sermons, particularly ones that are, that are a little more of a mystery and puzzle to people. Um, so uh, join me, if you will. Amen.